Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have. My guest in this episode is Kenny Aronoff. Voted by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the 100 greatest drummers of all time, Kenny stopped by to discuss his legendary career, playing alongside artists including John Mellencamp, Celine Dion, Joe Cocker, Avril Lavigne, Elton John and Rod Stewart to name just a few. And as always, we also discuss the worst gift he's ever been given. So Kenny, thanks so much for joining the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be part of England since my wife is from England. She's from Exeter in Devon. Incredible. So you've been, I imagine you've been over here a couple of times then. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of times, maybe a couple of hundred. uh, I've been touring in England ever since 1980. Uh, uh, The first time I ever came over was John Cougar Mellencamp. John Cougar's manager, Billy Gaff, was from uh, England, London. He managed uh, Rod Stewart. And so we were over there all the time. And, you know, of course, I've toured with everybody. Uh, Every major tour I've ever done is uh, we've come to England. And then now, of course, my wife is from there. So we go there until the pandemic. We would go there at least twice, three times a year. I wanted to go right back to the beginning to start with Kenny. And when did your sort of passion for music begin? And was it always a part of your early life? Well, I mean, I was 10 years old. I was playing outside. Uh, There was nothing to watch on TV. I grew up in New England. Uh, (laughs) It was Western Massachusetts. And uh, we're out there, and my mom yells at me and my twin brother. Well, I'm 10 years old. This was a town of like 3,000 people. And we're playing, and she yells at us, boys, come in right now. We, we were frozen in our shoes. We thought we were in trouble, which we usually were. And uh, we went running into the house, and she was pointing to a TV set, a black and white TV set. And uh, there were four guys on the TV dressed in suits, long hair, holding electric guitars, bass, and a drummer. And uh, they broke into, you know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd never seen rock and roll before, and I was bouncing off the walls going, I was, like, so hit with, I was so electrified and so blown away and felt so much passion and so much excitement for something I'd never, I didn't know what this was. All I knew is I wanted to be part of that. So I said to my mom, who are these guys? She said, well, they're the Beatles. And I went, well, I want to play in the Beatles. Call them up. (laughs) Get me in the band. I mean, that's what a 10-year-old does, right? And and I want to play drums. You know, forget about these piano lessons. I don't want to play piano. I want to play drums. And, of course, my mom didn't call the Beatles up, and she didn't get me a drum set. And I I was so passionate about what I'd seen. I started my own band two weeks later and we played Beatles music. Now, this was all about feelings. This is all about something I felt. It wasn't just an idea. It was a serious, this was really, this is when I realized what my purpose in life was before I even knew what those words meant. I didn't, what, you don't know those things when you're, so my point is let's go, let's fast forward 50 years later, 50 I get called to do a CBS special called The Night That Changed America, honoring the Beatles for that Ed Sullivan show that 72 million people saw. 
And I am now asked to be the drummer on that show, and I get to play with the two remaining Beatles, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, plus, you know, Stevie Wonder and Joe Walsh from the Eagles and on and on. And, oh, my God, I'm playing with the Beatles 50 years later. So, yeah, dreams come true, but they didn't come by accident. And, and, and dreams can come – my point is dreams can come true to anybody, but you have to make them come true. But – the, the silver lining here, the most important thing to realize here for everybody who's listening, the reason, if we connect the dots, the reason why I, I got that call 50 years later is because I did follow my passion. I did follow my deepest desires. I did follow my truth. And I did act on why I'm here on earth. My purpose in life, it, my desire, my crave craving desire is to play drums in a rock and roll band to make music to record it to play it live this is my drug of life and when you follow your purpose in life and your passion you will be unstoppable undeniable and you will be a hundred percent authentic that's why i lasted 50 years and still at the top of my game you know, of four decades of recording, you know, 300 million records sold and played with everybody in all genres of music. It's because I love what I do. And so if, if this doesn't work out, I don't stop. And if that doesn't work out, I don't stop. It's like a running back in the NFL. They don't get touchdowns every time they get the ball. Sure. They, just, they just keep trying for their entire life. You know why? Because they love football. <laughs> they love touchdowns. And they just keep going after it because that's what they're designed to do. So I try to encourage people because I have a speaking career to find your purpose in life, because then you can deal with, you know, ugliness like the COVID or getting fired or getting divorced or getting ill. You, because your fire inside your heart will, will help you persevere through all the crap. So talking of following the passion, what do you consider to be your sort of early big break? I mean, when, when was it the first sort of moment that you thought, wow, okay, maybe I can make a thing of this drumming thing? Well, the big break was the John Mellencamp break. And, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, that was the first band that was making records, that was on the radio, that was on TV, that was touring around the world. But, you know, prior to that, I mean, all through high school and as a kid, I just played in bands. They, they, they didn't even have a teacher that could teach you rock and roll because I'm, I'm that old. <laughs> I started <laughs> when it just started, you know. But I went to school and studied classical music for five years. I mean, at one year at University of Massachusetts then four years at the most intense and number one music school in the United States for classical music, Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana. That's the type a school that there's no hand holding there's no room for laziness it's very difficult to get in and it's harder to stay in it's like being in the SAS I mean they are testing you and that's why they are number one they push you and they drill you and you have to work your ass off and I did that for four years and I eventually got into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra as a percussionist and I turned it down because of that passion I turned it down to be in a rock and roll band, and I didn't even have a band at that point. I turned down certainty for possibility. That's an example of me 
I, I had I had a job. I turned it down. I turned the money down. I turned security down. I had spent five years studying and training to be something, and I turned it down, and my parents paid for it. And I turned it down because my heart said, no, I want to be in a band. And so for four years, I struggled, and then I get my break with Mellencamp. And, uh, you know, so it's the rest is not hit, is not like perfect. I get in the band. And five weeks later, we're making a record. We're in Los Angeles. I tell everybody, I made it. I'm like so excited. I'm telling everybody. And in two days, I get fired from the record. Yeah. And once again, this is an example where my desire, my passion, my bliss is is what's going to help me persevere this horrible moment. When John, by the way, John Mellencamp, I thought he he fired me because he's the one that told me. It was the producer. They needed somebody who had experience making records to get on the radio. Because, you know, a session drummer, you know what a session drummer's job is? Do you know what it is? Well, I mean, besides playing the drums on the record, but I'm sure you're going to tell me it's more than just that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you for setting that up for me. The session, the session drummer's job is one thing: get the record on the radio to be a number one hit. That means whatever you have to do, whatever you have to say, whatever you have to play. It's not about you; it's about the song. Ah. It's about me serving the artist and the song. If they want you to play with your head on the drum, you play with your head on the drum. If that's what's going to make a hit, what can I do to serve this artist, this band, this song to get on the radio? I had none of that experience. I didn't know. Mm. So the producer needed to get the record fast, done in eight weeks. And you had to get the drum tracks first. And there was no Pro Tools back then. So you it was just tape. So you had to play from beginning to end perfectly, sound, parts, click track, feel, everything. I had no experience. But when John Mellencamp told me, well, you know, I'll pay for the rest of the week, but you, you go home, you have to go home now. And I went, no, I said, no. And the band was looking at me like, holy shit. He just said, no, (laughs) that's like somebody going like, you know, you work for a company and they go, uh, excuse Mr. Aronoff, you're fired. And I go, no, I'm not. And they go, uh, you're fired. No, I'm not. And then it goes, what don't you understand about me telling you you're fired? And I go, well, I'm not. <laughs> and so what? What? So then I, I'm all nervous. See, here's what was happening here. The, the takeaway here is that John was taking away my purpose. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know this back then. I'm connecting the dots later. He was taking away my desire, my passion. I was like, Oh my God, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I was desperately fighting for my life. So I said to John, Hey man, am I still the drummer in your band or what? And he goes, well, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. And then I start scrambling. I'm like, well, all right, well, I'm going to go in the studio and I'm going to watch these other drummers play my parts and I'll get better. I'll learn from them. Right. And uh, I'll benefit from that. And then you'll benefit because I'm your drummer. I'll get better. Right. Silence. No, I went, Oh, <laughs> I went, Oh shit. I went, 
okay, well, you don't have to pay me and I'll sleep on the couch. <laughs> that <laughs> He went, fine, <laughs> okay, you can stay. <laughs> well, the point is, that was a, that was a life-changing moment for me. And for everybody listening, you have to realize, if you are very clear about what you want to do in your life from a place in your heart with love and joy and passion, don't let anybody stop you because that is who you are. You will be happier, you'll be healthier, and you'll be stronger as a person if you follow your heart. I know you played on a, a host of records. I mean, we haven't got time to go through all the records you've played on. I mean, it's easier to name the records you haven't played on, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah. I, I wondered, playing across so many genres, do you find that difficult at all to adapt from genre to genre? I love it. Let me tell you something. I got criticized as a kid. See, people want to pigeonhole you. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to when I was at Indiana University. Indiana University. So I'm a oh, I'm a classical major. That means I'm playing timpani and I'm playing mallets like marimba and vibes and I'm playing multiple percussion. I'm taking conducting and and sight singing and piano and music history and music literature and you're learning to be an orchestral player. Well, at night the jazz they had a jazz program. The jazz people up there found out that I could play jazz because I grew up when I was a kid playing rock and roll, but I played jazz or I'd play any type of music because music made me feel good. Uh-huh. I didn't care what kind. Oh, sure, I'll play Latin, I'll play jazz. And I, I le- tried to learn how to play everything. So the jazz guys would call, they found out, oh, he can play jazz, bebop. So they'd grab me and they'd practice their, their songs. Uh, for four hours a night. And so they were they were saying to me, God, why are you doing that classical crap? And then the classical people were going, why are you doing that jazz crap? And then <clears throat> both of them were going, why are you playing that rock and roll shit in the clubs? And and then I was doing country and I was doing R&B. I didn't care. Whatever, it was playing the drums made me feel good. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I? Do? I don't care. And also, if you play any style of music authentically, it's really exciting to me. Uh, so uh, that became my, 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 my business model. So as I got, and because I kept doing it, when I started doing recording sessions, the, some of these producers would say, whoa, Kenny can play rock, but he could, he like for the people who are listening. So here's a guy who made it, uh, you know, John Mellencamp playing with Rod Stewart, recording with Elton John, recording with the Stones, recording with Iggy Pop, uh, Springsteen, all these kind of songwriter things. Then I get called to do Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, the the, the Highwaymen, the the, the 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 authentic traditional country artists. And then that same producer hires me to do. Oh, I don't know, uh, you know, Elton John or then Celine Dion. Oh, and then I get a call to do Tony Iommi from Sabbath right there in Monmouth in Wales with Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. And then I get called to do the Smashing Pumpkins tour. And then I get called to do, you know, the girls, uh, Avril Lavigne, Michelle Branch, uh, you know, uh, you know, Celine Dion, Melissa Etheridge. Then I get called to do B.B. King. Uh, And I played with Ray Charles twice. Uh, Then I got to do the Joe Cocker tour for 10 years. I mean, people started to recognize this guy can do everything. And the 
the thing that they liked about me is I got the job done and I was easy to get along with and I had great communication skills. I know how to connect with somebody, communicate with somebody, and then collaborate with them. Connecting is like when I walk into a room for the first time I meet Elton John, I got to be able to walk up to him. Like, you know, he's like God to me, but I've got to go up to him and start talking. So now we're communicating. So now we can play music together. And I have those skills. I don't know where I learned them, but I have them. And that's what made it possible for me, for producers to want to hire me. Lots of great drummers, but this guy can play every style. Plus, it's great to have him on the team. He motivates everybody in the room and gets along with everybody. Now, we've reached the part of the show where I have to ask you, what is the worst gift you've ever been given? The worst gift? Let's see. The worst gift. What would that be? Uh, well, somebody once gave me a million dollars. That was horrible. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that was suffer. I gave it back, of course. When, when you were out on the road on, on tour, did you guys ever play like pranks on each other? Oh, absolutely. What's the best prank you ever played? Oh, the best prank is we wait for somebody to get a girl in his room. Then we get the key at the front desk. <laughs> Somehow we convince them. Then we walk in on them. No, and we call we call we called it we we called ourselves the sex sex police. We're just making sure that everything is going okay. Incredible, that's brilliant. Yeah, we would do that to each other. Or the other prank is we take somebody, get in the room or knock on the room. They let us in. We'd strip their, their strip them down, take their clothes off, and throw them outside in the hallway and throw the key out the window. <laughs> So they'd, they'd have to go downstairs to get a key. No. Did anyone ever play a prank on you, Kenny? Were you ever, were you ever the, uh, the pranked person? Absolutely. Both those things happened to me. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just marched down. I think I got, I, I was, somebody gave me, so I was I'm walking down holding my uh, private parts. Somebody felt bad for me. They gave me something to cover up. And I had, but I had to go into the lobby and, you know. I wanted to touch on that Beatles performance that you mentioned right at the beginning, because I know back in 2014 it was, there was that special Grammy performance that recognised the Beatles, as you said, with all the other artists performing. And you got to perform with Ringo and, and with Paul. And I guess that whole experience of going full circle of watching the Beatles in your living room as a kid, and then suddenly you're on stage with those guys. I mean, that must have been such a surreal experience. Absolutely. I had already met Paul McCartney and Ringo a couple of times. Uh, this was a, was iconic to be playing with them. Um, and the cool thing was after, you know, these TV shows, you know, you move into the, uh, no, we'd moved in the day before cause it was such a big show and we're rehearsing with the different artists. Like I had to rehearse with, dude, this was crazy. I did the night before the Grammys with Ringo Starr and the Highwaymen. Two, I'd never done two performances in one Grammy wow. show ever. The Highway Win, well, uh, Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash were already dead, but they had Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and then they had replacements for the other two. But we're doing country, but I'm also doing, you know, I'm rehearsing and doing, uh, uh, I think it's a song by Ringo Starr called Photograph. Is that it? Anyway, so 
I'm also running across to the other building to rehearse with Dave Grohl and the, with Keith Urban, Herbie Hancock, uh, you know, uh, you know, Joe Walsh. I mean, Ringo, you know, Paul. I mean, it was insanity. I even had to get uh, Greg Bizanet, my friend, a drummer who plays with the Ringo Starr. I had to get him to sub for me in the rehearsal for the Grammys with the Highwaymen. So that I, I couldn't be in two places at one time because <laughs> Jeff Lynn was saying, I, I need, um, I need, uh, <clears throat> I need you here right now. Anyway. So in between, before we went uh so we rehearse from like t- t- the day of the show, 10 in the morning till about six. And then there's a break. And it was me, Ringo and Paul. Wow. Don was the musical director, Ben Montench, I believe from Tom Petty's band and somebody else. And, Ringo and Paul were talking about what it was like, you know, growing up in Liverpool. And then that, that whole time when they were in Hamburg, you know, playing eight hours a day, seven days a week and describing. And I mean, it was unbelievable. Paul said that they felt like at that point they were already old. I mean, they were in their twenties <laughs> smoking fags as they call it. And, and they walked into a store Paul says, and uh, it was a music store. And back then, you know, the guy had like a jacket and tie. He was a jazz player and he's playing these cool chords. And Paul goes, wow, what's that chord? And he says, oh, this is a minor six chord. I think it was a minor six. And he's describing it. And Paul said, yeah, he goes to John. Hey, John, you see that? Did you see that? Can you can you play that? Learn that chord? You know, they're just sharing this intimate thing. And then uh, Paul used it, uh, he said, I only used it twice in my whole life, and one of them was in the song uh, Michelle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he used that chord in that. I mean, they were telling stories like that, and they just describing what it was like. I think they were, says, we were living, he says, we were living like, it might have been all four of them in one room, you know, and they barely had any, they had like a little deodorant, and, you know, they were like, barely had money for food, and they were all, like, they'd wear the same shirt for like four days, and they all like, and they said they thought they had made it big time. <laughs> They were sh- sharing like really intimate stuff like that. It was unbelievable. And uh, I mean, the nicest, coolest people and, you know, and, and Ringo. Okay. The, uh, the way I do a show like that is I don't get nervous. I get very, very serious. I don't pay attention to the audience in between songs. I have a new tempo with a click track and I'm rehearsing. There might be a 10 minute, changeover to get the one artist off and get the new and next mm-hmm. artist on. And I'm rehearsing the beginning of the song over and over and over again. There's no laughing. There's no hanging out. It's all business. And I'm rehearsing the count off and I've got notes. When I do shows like that, I'm not just playing drums. I'm really controlling how the show goes, the flow, everything tempos. I know what, when to count off. I, I know I have the script of the show. So uh, at the end, I did a really good job. Uh, it was very important because this is Beatles music. This is my, this is like, you know, you know, winning an Olympic gold medal to mm. get to play the show. And when I get done with the show, I'm, I'm very humble and very like, wow, I felt good inside, self-validation. 
I didn't need anybody to say anything to me. I knew I, I executed and did a good job. And I'm walking out there and there's, there are these, in the middle of this big arena, I'm going out there to look for my wife to see the end of the show. I had just done my ninth performance and I walk out and there are these elite seats in the middle. And it's like uh, Tom Hanks, the director, his wife, Ringo Starr, his wife, Paul McCartney's girlfriend, Yoko Ono, Sean Lennon, George Harrison's widow, uh, Danny Harrison. Then there's like, uh, like Tom Cruise, the actor, Sean Penn, the actor, and uh, oh, and Johnny Depp. Wow, they're all right there, and I'm like, I know all of them, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> how you guys doing? Ringo is clapping his hands and going, bravo, Mr. Aronoff, bravo, Mr. Aronoff. Wow, and I was like looking around, and I'm looking at him, and Tom Hanks is smiling at me. He's trying to get me to talk to him because he he I did that thing you do for his movie. I did the drums, you know, the uh, that the hit single from that movie, and so. I get down on one knee to talk to Ringo because everyone's looking at me in the place. And he looks at me and goes, uh, that's okay. I'm already married. And it looked like I was proposing to him. And, uh, and, and so I, I started laughing and, um, I said, you know, and I was trying to figure out what to say, but yeah. I didn't want to say something stupid. Yeah. And the only thing I could think about was something that would sound stupid, which was, you know, Ringo, you're the reason why I play drums. And seeing you with the Beatles set me on a course that I've been on ever since I was 10 years old. And I want to thank you for doing that. You changed my life. And I thought that might be stupid, but literally his wife was like, I think she was tearing or crying and Ringo loved it. He didn't, he's probably heard that so many times. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how many times that still makes him feel good. And, and then I got up and walked away and I was, I was walking away. I started thinking, you know, it's true, man. They, they stay, help me realize what my purpose in life is. They set me on a course, and because of that, I am where I am. I mean, it's it's so true. Now, the, yeah. this is audio only, but I, I have the pleasure of seeing you here on camera while we record this, and you are surrounded by gold and platinum discs all, all around the room that you're sat in there. <laughs> so I wondered, having played on so many records, which ones stand out for you as the most memorable? Oh, man, that's <laughs> so hard. First of all, I have 1,300 gold, platinum, diamond records. For Incredible. those who don't know what that is, you get, it in America, a gold record, once a, a record album sells 500,000, half a million, they would give us, as a gratuity, because I'm on the record, like I got Blaze of Glory by Bon Jovi, I got Mellencamp, I got Belinda Carlisle, I got That Thing You Do, Bob Seger, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell, two which sold 40 million records. Wow. A Celine Dion record that sold 40 million records. I've got Ricky Martin, Melissa Etheridge. I've got obviously a lot of Mellencamp. I've got uh, the, the, the Indigo Girls. Um, and then a, a lot of them aren't, aren't up. Michelle Branch. Um, but the, the platinum record is when you sell 1 million records in the USA and Diamond 10 million. Wow. And I have a few of those. Now, some of them I never, what, when the budget started to go away, they stopped uh, giving it to us. So you, I could 
you can buy them. You have to show that you were on the CD. And the one I wish I I had that I don't have is the Rolling Stones Bridges to Babylon. I wish I had oh wow had that one. Yeah, I played percussion on that. But anyway, um, the records, of course, the ones that was you know like uh, you know Bad Out of Hell too. You know because it sold forty million is such an honor. Uh, the Mellencamp record, you know American Fool, that won two Grammys, and Jack and Diane was a number one hit, which you know blew John's career up and launched my career because it has one of the most iconic drum solos ever on uh, hit radio music. You know it was the two most famous drum solos would be in the air tonight with Phil Collins. And then the one I did, uh, Jack and Diane, which is, you know, everybody air drums to it. Yeah. Um, as far, you know, um, any, any album that went to number one, of course, is one of my favorites. <laughs> I mean, but I'm proud of like, Oh man, you know, you know, Iggy pop. I thought that was the coolest thing to be on an Iggy pop record. Uh, uh, Tony Iommi, the album called fused. You guys should check it out, man. It is heavy. Glenn Hughes singing and uh, and playing bass. That uh, sadly, that record never really got the push. Uh, I think what happened was um, uh, <laughs> they put Black Sabbath back together, and so it kind of dwarfed uh, this record. <laughs> I think Sharon Osbourne had a passion to get Black Sabbath on the road, and so uh, suddenly it's like, <laughs> who cares about this little solo record? Uh, but th those uh. uh there's a record I played on that is completely different. It's, it's, it's called, it's a tribute to the, one of the greatest jazz drummers ever, Burning, uh, Buddy Rich. And it's called Burning for Buddy. It's a two CD set, came out on Lennox Records. Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, produced it. And it's me playing jazz, but it's blazing, man. It's killer. Nice. And that, that was very excited, intimidated, but proud of that particular recording. Uh, let me see what else is big. I don't know. There's so many. I mean, you, you know, must be running out of room on those walls, Kenny, to be honest. Oh, my, my, <laughs> the only place I put them up and very few of them up is this room, which is my office. And in my studio, I have them, but most of them are all boxed up and put away. <laughs> Wrapping up, Kenny, if you had to go right back to the beginning of your career and buy yourself yeah. a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? Uh, a lot of drum lessons. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a gift to myself. Seriously, it would be anything with regard to learning. I always practice. I was a guy who practiced eight hours a day, but maybe some just more lessons with some of the more with the right teachers. I mean, it's not very exciting, but that's what I would do. No, that's all good. That's a perfect answer. And and yeah. finally, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Okay. You can go to my website, uh, you know, .com. Uh All My Instagram is Kenny Aronoff. Uh, my Twitter is Aronoff Official. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Kenny Aronoff. I'm on Facebook, Kenny Aronoff. I apologize. I have like almost 2,000 people who want to be my uh, my uh, friend on my personal Facebook page, but it tapped out like yeah. eight years ago. Um, I have an autobiography. Uh, I have an autobiography. That's a great read called sex drums, rock and roll. And uh, I have a, <laughs> I actually came out with a, a coffee that's just come out called Kabam. 
Oh, yeah. But I don't know if you can get it in Europe. Yeah, it's called Kabam. K-A. Get it? Kenny Aronoff Kabam. I was going to call it Kaboom, but that's a toilet bowl cleaner, so we <laughs> couldn't do that. So it's Kabam. You drink enough coffee, you'll be Kabamming. That's fantastic. Well, Kenny, it's been great to have you here. Thanks so much yeah. for joining me on the show. Awesome, dude. Have fun, man. I can't wait to come to England. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.